Welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Real-world insights for your daily medical coding and billing processes. And now, here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Today, my name is Terry Fletcher. So today is the last Tuesday of July. Actually, I had to look at the, my calendar for a minute. It's so hot outside, I'm thinking it's August. And that means that we are at Top 10 Tuesday. We are on our 249th episode of the CodeCast podcast. As some of you know, I mentioned last week, we've been nominated. Uh, well, I've been nominated for two awards. We were nominated for the People's Choice Award for Podcasting for Business. And I actually got nominated as well for Best um, Female Podcast Host uh, for the um, NSCHBC podcast. So again, that was pretty exciting. Um, the voting will open up here in a couple weeks. And uh, thank you for those of you that that nominated me. So I, I really appreciated that. Um, just, just, just kind of fun to see that kind of thing. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, I have a lot of coding questions that I want to get back to. And so let's take our first one that has to do with allergy testing and ICD-10 coding. And so shout out to my allergy, asthma, and immunology uh, listeners out there. I know I don't, do, I don't do very much for you, so I thought I'd kind of give you some, some love today on some question. So here's one. It says, Terry, I have a question on billing for allergy testing. All this time and for any patient getting allergy testing, I've been coding ICD-10 code J30.1 allergic rhinitis due to pollen. And that's been the diagnosis we've been using. At a recent workshop, I was told I could use ICD-10 code Z01.82, which is an encounter for allergy testing. Now, can I use that? I wasn't sure that was a primary code. So thank you for your question. Yes, um, that ICD-10 guidelines actually state that Z01.82 may be used as a primary diagnosis code. And I would use this diagnosis for uh, otolingaric test allergy testing, uh, CPT code 95004 to 95024. The secondary diagnosis would be, if applicable, um, a J code in the respiratory system for the allergic rhinitis. Similarly, for the allergy shot encounter, the guidelines state that Z51.6, which is encounter for desensitization to allergens, uh, may be used as a primary diagnosis for the injection or shot visit. So we're talking about the codes 95115 to 95117 and then 95165. And then the J code as the secondary diagnosis. Now check with your payers because even with that said, some do not like the Z01.82 for that encounter for allergy testing or the Z51.6 as primary diagnoses. But I'm told that um, it is working quite a bit on a lot of commercial plans. Also, Medicare does pay for that. So we'll start with that question today. So let's go to question two. Same day return visit. I get this one all the time. So Terry, if a physician sees a patient and instructs him or her to return later that day for a blood pressure check, let's say, should or can our practice bill a 99211 with a modifier 25 significant separate identifiable ENM service by the same physician on the same day as the procedure in addition to that um, encounter so would they bill it for the first or second encounter so no so you can only charge one ENM for a combined service that day so you're seeing them for let's say a level three or four earlier in the day you tell them to come back for a BP check you're seriously just going to have one visit 
Payers typically follow guidance from Medicare and CMS says that two separate office E&M could be reported if it's two unrelated problems in multi-specialty services. So they don't allow it specifically under the same problem. Modifiers, so the number three, modifiers for incident two services. So this has come up lately. And I think some people are getting confused with what a shared and split visit is versus incident two services. So right off the bat, incident two means in the office, okay? And it means that your mid-level provider is providing a service that is an office visit as far as an established patient for services, or I should say for treatments and services that your physician has already planned out. So basically they're just continuing with that um, management that's already in the chart. So does Medicare require using a modifier to show that an advanced practice provider or NPP, such as a nurse practitioner or PA, provided an office visit incident to a physician service? Boy, it would be helpful if they did, but no, they don't. Medicare does not. And this could change because they're having a hard time tracking it. But some health plans do require a modifier SA, so S as in Sam, A as in Apple, but it's only for informational services. And so make sure you check with that plan because don't just automatically put it on there. The HixPix specifies nurse practitioner in the descriptor, but some of the plans say, well, you can also use that for PAs or clinical nurse specialists. Um, it just depends on that payer policy. But for Medicare, no, they do not require that. So number four, let's see, where am I at? One, two, three, four. So I've had this kind of interesting question come up quite a bit, and I thought this was um, just, I just thought it was different. It's, it's about physician billing for teaching physicians. It says, if a resident does an inpatient history and exam and discusses it over the phone with an attending physician on one calendar day, so for an example, 10 p.m. Thursday, and the attending doesn't round on that patient until the next calendar day, so 10 a.m. Friday, can the attending use the resident's documented H&P to support the billing for the initial hospital care, or must the resident see the patient again with the physician present and redocument the H&P? So the teaching physician can reference the resident's note, but may also must also document that he or she personally saw and participated in the management of the patient. So if after seeing the patient, the teaching physician agrees with the resident documentation and the patient's condition has not changed, then they can reference that documentation in lieu of redocumenting on the day that they saw them face to face. But just with the collaboration over the phone, no, until they see them, they can't bill for it. And that actually is in chapter 12, section 100.1.1 of the Medicare Claims Processing Manual. So teaching physician rules are kind of tricky. Question number five. So I performed, Terry, I performed a biopsy of a lesion on the external ear. Should I report a code from the integumentary section, which is skin, or the auditory system section procedurally of CPT? So if it's biopsy external ear, that would be code 69100 from the auditory system section. So CPT provides actually an instruction at the end of the uh, prefactory instructions for biopsy codes in the integumentary section that talks about if it is of the external ear or certain uh, areas of organs on where to go. So that was actually an instruction from CPT. One, two, three, four, five. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting confused here with my numbering system. Apparently I've got other things going on. So question comes up for multiple x-rays. Is it appropriate to report two codes for x-rays when one is taken prior to the removal of a foreign body and the other is taken to confirm all of that the, all of the foreign body was removed? 
So if two x-rays are for the same procedure, okay, same anatomic locations and views, you may be able to report the 76 modifier, which says repeat procedure or service by the same physician or other qualified healthcare professional, and that would be with the code for the second x-ray. Now if the second x-ray is a different procedure, so fewer views, you may have to use a 59 modifier to reflect it was a distinct procedural service. But in either case, be ready to provide documentation if the payer requests it, including the images and report of findings that describe the indications uh, for any limitation of the exam, details of images reviewed, lateral or posterior, and any comparisons, uh, clinical questions answered, and impressions. So with multiple x-rays, they are very clear that they want to see that documented effort. So question seven is kind of interesting, and I'm actually not sure how I feel about it, so I'm going to give you a professional opinion. It says, if a provider orders routine labs for an upcoming preventative medicine visit, and at the end of a problem-focused encounter, do the data points count towards today's EM visit? Well, this is going to depend on your organization's policy on when you count labs. And also, is it for the problems that were addressed? So I know AAPC had something on this, and they said on the order of the lab, and if your organization has a policy and when you can bill a problem-based visit at the time of the preventative service, they advised counting the test under ordered at the time of the problem-based visit. I disagree. So if it is for specifically for the um, the service coming up that is the preventative and it doesn't have anything to do with the number and complexity of problems addressed in the problem-based visit, then how can you count it? So for me, it would have to wait until uh, you're dealing with the preventative visit, which actually you would not get credit for it unless you just charged extra for those labs. If you're just ordering it, it would actually be part of that preventative service because that's what they're for. You're, you're fact-finding or fishing. It's not specifically to that problem. So that one was was kind of interesting because I think it, it can be a little bit um, dicey if you tell your physicians that they can count for labs and, and put in some data points on something that is in the future. I, I don't like that at all. So be, be very careful with that. That's a problem. So on question eight, which I got earlier today, this one just concerns me because um, it, it came from someone that um, has been asking questions to me for a long time. And I, I guess I made some assumptions that they really understood their cardiology coding. And the question says, Terry, I have a question. I've always coded a stent, 92928 or 92920 first when it's done with a heart cath using modifier XU on the cath. Is it correct or does it matter which you code first? I'm asking because one of our Medicaid carriers is denying some of our claims, stating either the cath or the stent is bundled. So please let me know the way you've been counting them. So first of all, make sure that you're not billing for the angioplasty in the same vessel at the same time as the stent. So because that would be bundled into the stent. So I, I could have misinterpreted how you sent the, the question over to me. But your your highest valued procedure, so the highest RVU, which would be your 92928, or if it was an angioplasty only 92920, would go first. And then your second highest valued procedure would be your heart cath, 93458. You need a 26 modifier if it's done in a facility setting, and then an XU modifier if it's Medicare to show that it's a non-overlapping service. Now, make sure that it's diagnostic. That could be something that, that your Medicaid payer is finding out that it wasn't diagnostic, that actually, in effect, it was a transfer from another doctor who already did a cath, 
and now they don't want to pay for another one that is for setup angiography for the stent. So make sure that it's diagnostic, meaning that you're still trying to find a problem. Otherwise, this is really going to be an issue um, coming up if you're having, you might have to send back, you know, money and you don't want to do that. So here's another uh, something interesting that came up, and this is question nine. And this is something that I, you know, I really didn't think of. And I think it's important that you um, think about this and talk about this with your physicians, because there are some things that are happening now that are a problem for patients, and it has to do with common phrases. Okay, and so uh, we had a patient that, and now that patients have access to their medical records under the Cures Act, they're starting to see some things that they don't feel is appropriate. And let me give you an example. So somebody asked this question, this is number nine. Uh, Terry, we're having a hard time because patients now that they can access their medical records to a point, they're seeing things like presenting complaint or patient denies, and they feel that it sounds judgmental and or doubtful. So we had a patient that said, I did not deny these things. I said, I didn't feel them. That's completely different. So language matters. And then the author wrote about one person's response shown a doctor's notes of an outpatient visit. Another patient balked at a phrase, patient claims pain is a 10 out of 10, instead of patient is experiencing 10 out of 10 pain. So here's the problem with that. Think about that. Patient claims versus patient's experiencing. It implies a degree that the doctor doesn't believe them. And here's another one, and this is really important. And this comes again from the same person asking the question. They said, we also had a patient that uh, said something that they didn't like in their note that said, a patient not tolerating oxygen mask versus patient refusing oxygen mask and showed the non-neutral term was linked with negative attitudes towards the patient and less prescribing of pain medications. And so not tolerating versus refusing, you better have a good workup on that. Refusing means against going against medical advice. Not tolerating means it's not working for that patient. I know, oh my gosh, like three or four years ago, um, I had a frozen shoulder on the left. And if you've ever had that, it, it happens in typically in women over 50 where, you know, you just don't move your hands above your head. And so your, your shoulder basically just gets uh, used to being in a certain area if you're not a, you know, workout queen, which I'm not. And so it's, it's excruciating even just to pick up your cell phone. So they try to put you on a steroid or prednisone, which scares me because I hear that thing makes you crazy. Does it help for five days? It does. Does it take away the pain? It does. But it makes you nuts. But I said after three days, I said, I'm not tolerating this, so I don't want this medication. I read my chart too, and it said patient refused prednisone. I did not refuse anything. I said, this isn't good for me. <laughs> so this is where you have to really watch your highlight, and that's the question. Watch your language because what we used to think was, you know, routine, that's been really deeply ingrained in the medical profession and the medical practices. And so you have to be very careful about using negative descriptors such as resistant, challenging, non-compliant, and copying those um, descriptors into notes that could hurt a patient from getting um, the care that they actually really need. Also be careful because there's also been some, and I just read this in a university study from England that said that some of these phrases also have been a problem with uh, some discrimination within certain um, patient ailments. And it's it, the language has been overtly, I, I hate to use the word racist, but they said there's been some things there. So be really smart in your medical descriptions 
and make sure that your communication between physicians and patients, make sure that that communication goes over well and that you're accurate in your choices on what you put in there. And that was a great question nine that patients, you know, language and medical records are due for an update. Um, I was just recently talking to a physician group and they were a very diverse group. They had, um, you know, um, Asian physicians, black physicians, white physicians, um, physician of Indian descent. They had all kinds of different ethnicities, which I loved because in my mind, when a, when you look like your patient, the patients are more likely to come in. Uh, in the one area in San Diego, they're very heavy Russian patients and it's very populated there. And it just, you're intimidated if you're going to an, you know, an office that maybe that person doesn't speak your language or again, doesn't look like you. And then I started, the reason I bring that up is I started to look at some medical diagrams and medical charts. Do you notice that there's nothing that shows ethnicity in a lot of charts? It's all white. So there's some things there that we need to update and it just would make patients much more comfortable. And, and this is just something that I'm noticing as we're evolving. Uh, in this country in a, in, a, in a way to really just make sure that we've got, you know, obviously inclusion, diversity, and we're, we're having everybody um, count when it comes to healthcare. Okay, so our final question, I'm going to circle back to the 25 modifier. And I know this is always a pain, but these are things that are coming up quite a bit on audits, and I want to make sure that you're clear on some of this service. So, and some, I should say some of these rules. So question, patient is being seen for a post-op appointment under the global surgical period. Patient is still having pain. Can we bill a visit with a 25 modifier? The answer is no. The reason is, is first of all, there's a reason for the 90-day global. Patients are expected to have routine residual pain for that 90 days, and that's why they are allowed to come in, I don't want to say for free, but under their global surgical period, um, with that includes those visits. And so that would not be an additional ENM. Remember, CMS says that if you take the patient, unless you take the patient back to the uh, the OR, then everything is included in that um, global surgery package. Um, AMA says if you did have complications or other non-related procedures, then you can bill for those. So there's actually a, a double standard rule there. I'm actually going to give you two bonus questions today. It says patient is being seen for post-operative appointment under the global period. The patient has blisters where the cast was from rubbing. Is this enough reason to bill the visit under separate significant problem? Answer is no. If these blisters are due to the, you know, the cast or cast, I'm sorry, rubbing, then it is an incidental, incidental irritation to the cast and no evaluative service is really needed. They'll basically change the cast, put some drying or some ointment on there and say, you know, move along. Now, when would that be potentially a problem that could be with a 24 modifier? This is when a patient, let's say there's a hematoma that needs to have maybe an incision and drain at the wound site, then that's different. But blisters for the, you know, this distinct problem of it rubbing, no, that would be incorrect. Now here's the last one, and this is your last bonus one. Patient is seen for knee pain, for osteoarthritis, provider decided on an injection. The provider discussed surgical and non-surgical treatment with the patient, uh, reviewed risk and benefits of an injection. The visit was billed with a 25 modifier. So is this allowed to be billed? 
Well, maybe. If this was a new patient and there were other treatments to consider based on the patient's clinical profile, maybe they're on Coumadin or there's some issues there, then maybe, then yes, there would be. But if this was an established patient visit and this was a previous discussion with the patient and now they're coming back in for that injection or even to talk about that injection, then that would be no. So read your rules. Uh, in the Medicare manual because they're very specific on minor procedures with E&M services and that there's a pre-intraservice and post-work that's included with minor procedures that does not warrant an additional E&M service. So you have to be very cognizant of that, otherwise you could overcode. Top 10 Tuesday was brought to you today by Gold Bond Ultimate. Skin Therapy Lotion, Healing 10 Layers Skin Deep. Gold Bond Ultimate with Aloe for skin that's nourished, healed, and healthy looking. Okay, so my personal tidbit this week, actually, it is my 23rd wedding anniversary this weekend, and we've already started with going down to the beach, and we're also uh, going to a very nice steakhouse dinner, a place we really love. It's called Bourbon Steakhouse in Monarch Beach, California. It's down South Orange County, and we're going with some friends, and we can't wait. Very nice bottle of wine, and they have the best shrimp cocktail I've ever had in my life, so we're excited about that, so um, shout out to my husband, Tom, for that. And everyone, just have a really good rest of your week and make it a great day. And thank you for listening to the CodeCast podcast. For more information on medical coding, billing, auditing, and compliance, including how to hire Terry, follow Terry on Twitter at TerryCoder1 or visit her website at www.terryfletcher.net. Podcast producer Joe Kuzma. Music producer, Assassin Music.